coming to you live from the sixth floor of the Hiawatha here in Portland, Maine. It is the System Failure Podcast number three. What's going on, Nate? Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Um, well, I'm given to understand that you had a little bone to pick um, at the top of this podcast, uh, maybe with Tim Poole specifically, because you've been listening to one of his podcasts, or just generally the way that Marxism is understood in our culture. Um, so why don't you... Uh, why don't you tell us uh, what that bone is you'd like to pick? Yeah, well, there's just this thing where, well, we're sold these ideas of, uh, of, of like culture issues instead of like actual communism or socialism. And then, so people say that socialism is bad or that communism is bad because what we're being fed by our, you know, shadowy elites uh, is like not actually good, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to go all the way back to the red baiting of the 50s or even before that, like the Sacco and Vanzetti trials down there in Braintree, Massachusetts, uh, that were famous examples of um, anarchists or communists being you know, set up or used as political scapegoats. So there's, there is a weird thing where like trucking with communism is like praying to the devil in the Middle Ages, right? It's the one thing you must never do. So there is that extreme sort of overreaction to communism that is an artifact of our culture. And so it, it, it does seem like the modern culture war is just kind of, the so-called culture war is kind of, if you're against the left, you just sort of reflexively refer to what you're against as communism. And that really leads to this weird blending of communism, which like, if you crack an old Karl Marx book, there's nothing in there about like you know, BLM or trans rights or any of these other supposedly hot topic issues today. So I, I do know what you're saying and, and roll my eyes too when confronted with, with that thing. Obviously, I support black lives and people should express themselves any way they want. But it's just that yeah, like what we actually want, well, you know, we should like tax the rich and give that money to people. And then like everyone's lives would be a lot better, right? Yeah, it's an experiment that we tried in this country, jacking up taxes on the rich and using it to make society better. From the 30s to something like the 70s or 80s, that was definitely the case. And most people, whatever their political persuasion, identify that as a golden era. But um, it's interesting, yeah, it, it's interesting that what one would like is not is to like say, hey guys, I think we're being distracted, like a matador distracts a bull with a cape. When you point that out and say, I think we may be being distracted from class issues by this other these other sorts of lefty issues, then you don't, you, one would like to not be called a bigot, you know, <laughs> it'd be nice. <laughs> well, obviously the schism between like class and just the way like class is like kept out of the conversation. And if you like talk about taxing the rich, what do they accuse you of? Of like classism? That's what, that's what, they, that's like a thing, right? Yeah. They'd like to avoid any sort of mention of any sort of class analysis or class consciousness that we like to make sure that that's not something that's a regular tradition here in the good old US of A. I mean, I would say that nothing seems more transparently obvious that there's a propaganda like censorship campaign like against well, class awareness breaking out and trying to make classism into a bad thing. That's what they did when Bernie Sanders was running against Joe Biden, as they called Bernie bros classist. <laughs> yeah, and that really only gets us as far as socialism. 
So interestingly here, I remember in 2009 going to the movie theater and seeing Michael Moore's movie Capitalism, A Love Story. And that movie was really kind of um, an advertisement for socialism or a decrime. You know, we all know how Michael Moore's movies are. They're wildly entertaining, but they they usually are pushing a message. And the message was something like we should implement the sorts of policies, Brian, that you're referring to that have been successful in America's own recent history. But there's also a whole other level beyond this, which is commonly called communism, which is where workers own the means of production, which I think is the purest form of the idea of communism but that's really the thing that they're decrying like the creeping tendrils of communism are gonna you know force the force some kind of crazy agenda down all of our throats uh, some kind of egalitarian you know ultra woke agenda and i don't know i don't i feel like we're that weird boogeyman just misses the total idea of in this case of communism workers owning the means of production directly you know which would prevent things like factories from moving overseas to china some of the most major blights on american society are inflicted on us by a lack of democracy over the workplace we can get into that discussion but then there's also the workers should not just that workers should own the means of production but also that like we should heavily like you're saying heavily tax the rich and use that to recycle money kind of like the water cycle where water evaporates off the ocean forms clouds the clouds blow over the mountains and then there over the cooler mountains they fall like rain rains form the streams and rivers that flow into the lakes that eventually flow into the ocean and the idea is that money has a way of pooling in the coffers of the rich and in order to keep the virtuous cycle of the economy going you have to move it back to the beginning of the water cycle again by you know, by using policy to remove it and give it to the poor. So these are both um, these are both valid ideas that that get lost in the discussion when leftism is just painted as wokeism and nothing else. Um, and I think it has to be deliberate. There's no way it's a coincidence, given the crazy history of red baiting that we have been party to here in uh, the United States. Well, I think you have to be a realist. See, maybe in this way, perhaps we disagree slightly. Well, I just I don't think it's actually very likely that we start taxing the rich practically speaking. And so it just, like, I, I think we should tax the rich, but if that were to happen, like, what would that mean? Like, just our political system we have right now is not at all set up to tax the rich, right? Uh, do you mean that in the sense that they wouldn't know what to do with all the money and would spend it irresponsibly or possibly even on corruption? Or do you mean it in the sense that, that we uh, like are incapable of it in some other way? Well, like, I mean, yeah, we are literally not set up as a government. Like, well, the, the people we have in charge are not going to do that, right? Yeah, well, of course, they're heavily, they're, they're, their campaign contributions are all paid by the rich, of course. So, they're... Yeah, so it would mean something about, like, that something had changed fundamentally if we were able to tax the rich, right? Well, in the 1930s, that thing was the Great Depression and epic stock market crash to mirror the fall of Rome. I mean, it was in a it was in an insane state. FDR later gave a speech where he said that you know if this administration, which was accused of being red, you know, of course um, the papers decried the soak the rich legislation that would vastly increase taxes on the wealthy and corporations. But he said if this administration had in the in any inclination to change the means of private profit that run the country, we all we had to do was sit there and fold our arms and let you know let capitalism continue to decay to the point where it headed in 1932 something along those lines is the the quote he gave but so you say it's impossible and that we're not set up to do it but we have done it in living memory so i put the question back to you what do you think has changed well i mean a lot has changed well there's just all this wealth after world war ii right but uh well i think just the people in charge have gotten better at gaming the system and so, you know, the front runners have just gotten further, further in ahead and have just better figured out how to extract wealth from, you know, everyone else. And so, I mean, that's why it costs like $50,000 to go to college now when, you know, it costs our parents way less. 
Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, again, again, that that thing happened in recent memory. There was a big flip in the 1970s where we went from, you know, taxing the money, the money we need to keep the cycle running, right? Marx's prediction that it would break down when the rich gained too much influence due to the introduction or advent of technology, which is what you just mentioned. But we, we flipped a switch in the 1970s. We went from, you know, taxing that money from the rich and re redistributing it to the poor to borrowing it from the rich instead via credit cards and all manner of other debt instruments. And that way, keep the engine of the economy running. But of course, I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean that's a, that, that, that is obviously a scheme that can only run for so long, borrowing money interest to keep, because you know, eventually we're going to have to admit the bills can't be paid. And that really brings us to our current moment in time. I think an admission on that front could lead to progress on to, to a restoration of some of the prior legislation that made this country, you know, the the golden age that it was for some of the people that lived here. I mean, to be clear, things could change in a way that, you know, we could start taxing the rich. I guess, you know, what happens in this upcoming election <laughs> could uh, decide that. I mean, suppose... Uh, uh, well, suppose that Donald runs again and wins. That'll create some kind of change. I would agree that the COVID is definitely a, a catalyst for change. And yeah, I would agree that the system, the way it is, doesn't seem like it can last in perpetuity. So I guess I think the system could last, though, anywhere between, well, between now and November. So that's uh, four months or something. And, and it could last from four months to like another 150 years. You know, like, obviously, I, I agree, you know, with your fundamental thesis that society did collapse in 2008. We're just in this, like, transitioning time, and so uh, we're just going to, you know, cannibalize on each other for a little while here. Yeah, so that's what makes um, analysis that just kind of conflates all these ideas with the recovery of political rights for certain minorities or politically otherwise politically disadvantaged people. is a discussion well worth having, but also a front we've made a lot of recent progress on. And we're watching um, like kind of the bottom fall out of society. The, the situation here in Portland, Maine, sure has been uh, illuminating. We had we now have tent cities set up in all of our major parks where that wouldn't have been the case um, pre-COVID. Um, we certainly had our population of unhoused prior to COVID, but it's really exploded. And, and you know, obviously, property values have skyrocketed here in the wake of COVID. And I think that this sort of pattern is playing out in most major cities across the U.S. So I think things definitely seem like they're accelerating out there. And it seems like the time has long come for some more serious conversation. You know, not that we need to flip the switch and have some kind of a communist revolution. Oh, I do like to say that to, I do like to use the word communism. It gets a great reaction from people like over 50. It's, it's, I have, <laughs> wielding that is an interesting conversational tool. But the time is long past for a conversation that at least takes some of these our Marxist critiques seriously, given how... Like, given especially now we've got ChatGPT and, and the big writer strike on it and actor strike on it in Hollywood, we really have to, like, kind of have an actual adult conversation and a collision with some of these Marxian ideas. I, I think that would be, um, you know, when you say something changing in the future, you know, people just talking to each other and being connected on podcasts like this is a big part of any change that's going to happen. But I think we finally need to have, again, not a wholesale um, adoption of Marxist policies or veneration of Marx as some kind of a prophet. We just need to like grapple with what he had, those ideas he had on an adult level instead of just plugging our ears and you know seeing la la, um, which is, seems to be the level of maturity that we're bringing to the situation at this moment. Well, to me, like Marxism is like an analysis of the situation and isn't exactly proscriptive, right? So cultural Marxism is this term that's come to mean yeah, all the bad parts of communism, all the historical problems. Yeah. 
Well, the notorious problems of communism are long and very well documented. Um, so, I mean, I would only point to some of the obvious successes that are that are never talked about. You know, again, not as a way uh, advocating for copying either of the two most famous communist systems of all time. We don't, we don't want, they have obvious problems. We don't want to copy their system exactly, but let's look at where they're successful and copy the parts of their society that make them successful. And uh, one obvious case is the space race where the, so the Soviet Union went from a, the, went from a Russia that was, you know, princes and, you know, peasants and serfs, and like, like a, like a virtual, like a borderline medieval society right into the industrial age. And uh, virtually every single major um, achievement uh, in the space race was won by the Soviets' first person in space, you know, uh, for, uh, first object on the moon. They have a long list of achievements. Um, we got first person on the moon, but that's pretty much it. Um, they were neck and neck with us competing with the major industrial power of the time. Um, and they did it in a single generation. They converted this, like, town, this, uh, this civilization of, like, castles and villages into, like, an industrial powerhouse in one generation. That's unbelievable. And the Chinese are uh, outgrowing us. Um, uh, obviously, we, in terms of economic competition, they have gained on us in a way that is unprecedented in the annals of history. Um, so at least from the somewhat dubious measure of GDP, um, they are, they've been putting up numbers that we can only dream of here in the United States. So in other words, they, they're very organized. Now, there are obvious drawbacks to the way that these two civilizations have done business. I think a much more democratic model would be the, would be the prescription here. But in any case, it is definitely worth noticing that despite communism and socialism's notorious reputations, they have been successful. And other places in the world do take these ideologies with at least some seriousness. Like you can vote for a communist party in France, for example. Um, it's, not, it's not seen as some crazy communing with the devil sort of, <laughs> sort of thing to do. So, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I feel like so something has to give. And eventually people are going to need to start talking about the way that we organize production and distribution because it's getting less and less usable, the, the system of ours. And, and most of us are spending our days doing less and less sensible things. I think the system shows serious signs of uh, not being able to get out of the quarter it's painted itself into. And so, again, I'll reiterate, that's why I think conversations like these are long overdue. I mean, it is interesting that every time there's a people's uprising in South America, the United States military has to go in and knock it down. I mean, that doesn't really explain why socialism is so evil. Uh, it seems like the worst part about socialism is that, well, it gets corrupted by, like, capitalist interests. I mean, it's interesting that the United States sent troops in 1915 or whatever to fight against uh, the proletariat in like the soviet revolution right yeah um so there was a certain number of u.s troops this is the interesting history um there's that movie um from 1985 with swayze red dawn you know where the communists parachute into like denver colorado or the mountains of colorado and the school kids you know the high school kids like that scenario was only played out in reverse um in 1918 after the great war ended um, there were a certain number of american troops and british and french and japanese troops who didn't go home, uh, they instead went to the Soviet Union to fight on the white side, that is the pro-monarchist side, um, and try to stop the Reds from seizing control of the massive country with all those natural resources. So yes, that did happen. The analysis of Marx was really the story of the collision of this um, constant uptick in democracy that's noticeable when you kind of view history as a stock market chart. We got into this a little bit on the last pod. There's a progression to society where people were there rigid and top down at the, you know, in the, uh, in the aftermath of the agricultural revolution, but they get more democratic as history wears on. This seems to be the course of history, at least to the Western mind. 
And then there's a parallel, you know, stock market chart that goes up over time in technology. You know, sometimes technology is lost or, you know, sometimes there's setbacks. But over the course of time, we generally expect better and better technology to manifest itself in society. And the collision of these two long and ancient trajectories is really what Marx was obsessed with when he sat down to write his three volumes of Capital and his uh, various other notable works. And so it really, um, it's really, it's no, it, it's, it doesn't seem like much of a surprise to me that when we think about, okay, things aren't working so well, systems are failing on, on around us or, or on a downward trajectory towards failure, the, you really have to start thinking about casting your mind towards things like the long sweep of history. That's really when it becomes, uh, becomes valuable because it gives you a sort of a storyline or a narrative or a broader narrative to establish yourself in. Because otherwise you have no choice but to kind of freak out that things are getting worse, right? Well, another thing that's certainly changing is technology. I was remarking before about how the election could be a catalyst for change to start taxing the rich, for instance. And technology is definitely a crazy wild card. Although I guess I could see AI going either way and uh, <laughs> furthering our enslavement or possibly freeing us. Um, yeah, I mean, there, that, that's really, the AI uh, enslaving us or, f or freeing us is really the road that diverges when you think about AI managing and pr performing most production and distribution functions. You just, if someone owns those robots, if someone, if some, if like private citizens have rights to own that kind of huge apparatus of production with no other, like no other <laughs> oversight or no other ability to control them, we, we sure are in for a dystopia. But who could really like, um, like who could really expect that a system like that could possibly exist for long? Like why most people are just going to exist having nothing while well, one person hoards everything, right? It's a, that that situation never lasts. That's why the empires fall, right? They, they get too top heavy. It happens every time. Well, if the AI takes over, <laughs> we could be pretty effed. But uh, I think a system, I have to imagine our AI, the, the AI thing that we're giving birth to is going to be more sophisticated than ourselves and therefore like has to be better. How long could it stay as like a, a tool of uh, our, you know, our capitalist oppressors to, uh, to hold us down? Like, like, right. Yeah. It's hard to imagine something that has that kind of intelligence, but on the other hand, in our own society, as it exists today, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like the smartest people are in control at all. It doesn't seem, in other words, that smart that intelligence translates to control. Maybe it's different if you're talking about hyperintelligence. That could be a, a big X factor. It's a big unknown. But I definitely think that a lot, a great, a lot of sort of white collar work is put in immediate peril of AI prior to AI becoming effective enough to outmaneuver humans and seize control of everything and uh, enslave us all. There'll be, a, there'll be a window in which tons of white collar people are out of work. You know, heretofore technologies primarily attacked uh, the jobs of the blue collar crew, um, but this time it's coming for some people who, who are, you know, upper middle class who might have some much more political clout and to say, wait a second, we need to have a look at how we're structuring the economy here because we're, we're hurtling towards a situation where a tiny number of people are going to have a, a ridiculous amount of control over it. And that runs antithetically to our notion of democracy, that, that, that violates our, our notion of democracy that we're kind of, we're raised with, despite the fact that we don't have democracy when it comes to the means of production and distribution. You know, I, I think actually maybe my mind has changed. <laughs> I think change is coming soon. And yeah, it's, I mean, well, you'd have to say that things got pretty real during the COVID. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so how long until I think, things get real again? <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Well, I think art, we've said it, you know, there's a constant theme here at System Failure, but art is really important, or expression is really important, if we can broaden it to expression even, of which, you know, the art of expression really i guess is what we're talking about let's put it that way podcasts like this you know people expressing ideas um, and connecting with each other like nodes in a network thanks to the internet i think has the power to really bring about really cut through the old crazy anti-red from vintage 1950 paranoia that we just have to get beyond that in order to advance the conversation but i think it'll happen you know like malcolm gladwell would say as a tipping point it's all going to happen fast in other words i've heard Chris Hedges used the analogy of the Protestant clergy of Berlin in 89, assuring their flock that, yes, we're making political progress towards getting the wall taken down, but no, these things, you know, you know the bureaucracy, you know the legislative process. We, we might have to live with it for years and years, but we're making progress. And then the thing happened, like, within a couple days. It all, the situation just escalated like a wave breaking. Um, it all happened fast. And so I wonder how much more we, how much further we have to go. There was quite a harrowing saga outside my window on Thursday night. Um, there was a woman who lost her mind like she finally snapped she must have been unhoused she didn't look well she was kind of heavy set middle age late middle age you know graying stringy hair blue windbreaker and uh, she finally snapped and just started attacking strangers and we heard squawking this is outside of our window here in the apartment tower at the high loft up on the eighth floor and we looked out and saw this woman attack a couple and the man of the couple got between them and ushered his mate away quickly um, and then she turned there was a concert going on at one long one longfellow square and there were people you know doing the usual smoking routine of hanging out around the entrance and she attacked some woman with blonde hair and that fight went to the ground with kicking and clawing and there was shrieking it was insane uh, finally the crowd got the victim you know away from the crazy clawing woman and then like the lads in the crowd were trying to just kind of push her away from the other people and keep her at bay and she would attack whoever got close to her and she got into a third fight with another with one of these dudes and then finally after that after that dude disentangled himself and scampered away finally the cops showed up but it just really goes to show that people are going off crazier than normal i mean I, you would never have seen this even uh, even in my like uh, in my previous years here at the hiawatha nothing quite that crazy this woman was just going to keep attacking people until the police came and carried her away they have a repurposed ambulance that's like a paddy wagon the portland pd do and they put her in there by this time tracy and i had descended to the second floor to look out of the observation deck uh, window we could hear her smashing and screaming inside that van you know the thing was like rocking and uh, the cops quickly drove it away at that point and that was the last we saw of her like the pot really seems like it's boiling. Uh, I, I think most people uh, must be noticing this in the centers of population concentration or the urban centers. It can't just be Portland, Maine. And indeed, I've seen YouTube videos from San Francisco, Philadelphia, Los Angeles that they'll all make you, you know, all curl your toes or oof. And we just seem to have it in microcosm here. Uh, it, it will drive you insane that it's not really reflected, you know, in the in the narratives of the news media or the movies. It, it definitely makes for an, an eerie era of hypernormalization. So that's that's where I'm at. I, I gotta think that you know people will tough it out for a few more years, but eventually, I mean, we're gonna have to just shrug our shoulders and say, is it really going worth going to work or paying rent? Like what? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the whole thing is uh, really seems like it's becoming more and more absurd to more and more people. And that mutation or evolution has definitely accelerated thanks to the COVID era, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, man, I don't know. Poor people matter. <laughs> Like, um, how are we, do we have a distorted view? Cause we live in downtown Portland, um, is really the rest of the country fine. And it's only in the urban centers where things are chaotic. I don't know. It really feels like 
there has to be some measure of the news media trying to get us ratcheted up because they want to get clicks for their advertisers or drive um, you know, drive engagement with their app or get us to you know sit for their their cable television whatever you know however they make their money like is it part of it that uh, I don't know it's hard to know how objective an observer you really are because it's not really possible to be such a thing I suppose how many homeless people <laughs> do you think are in the United States I mean it's got to be like millions and millions right mm -hmm. yeah I got to think so I saw a report from the United Way which concluded that there are 28 vacant homes in the United States for every one homeless person people say that the housing prices are the result of nimbyism and zoning regulations but if we're at a state where there's 28 vacant homes for every one homeless person, then we are talking about insane inefficiency on the part of our system of housing production and distribution. There's definitely a location problem. You know, there's gonna be a lot of houses that are like vacant in cold country, West Virginia, that no one wants to live in necessarily because those towns, because there's no more coal mining and those towns are gone and there's no one else living there. It still speaks to a, a massive inefficiency in the way that we provide housing. And something's gotta be like, that's gonna have to be addressed at some point. It can't just, I mean, that's a really wild number in my mind. One, one in, in 28. We can put the link in the show notes so other people can click on the uh, United Ways report and judge for themselves. See, it sounds like a questionable number just because if there was 28 empty units for every person, that would mean there's like a lot of open housing. It seems like the price of housing should be cheaper. But you just don't see that many open houses around. I think there's a lot of vacant houses around. Um, you hear stories about people walking down through downtown Manhattan and Vancouver, and all those apartment towers are all dark because they're all investment properties. There are ways for foreign nationals to park money here in the United States in a way without having to have a bank account necessarily, and, and in a way that appreciates value really rapidly. Um, in the years past, I've seen numbers as low as seven and as, as high as 22. But I don't think anyone would say that. Uh, I, I think seven is a is a really, really <laughs> is the lowest possible estimate. So let's say it's not one in twenty eight. Let's say it's actually one in seven because the United Way wants to they want to err on the most like charity worthy side of the illustration. So let's say it's actually one in seven. You're still talking about seven houses for every unhoused person. That's just just sitting there with nothing going on or maybe being used as an Airbnb. That would probably get you more in the twenty two or twenty eight range if you count the Airbnbs. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's like um, we we've got to face. No one wants to sell the house that's supposedly worth 400k for 200k or 100k or 50k because that will drop the price of all the houses surrounding it down to that level. So no one wants to let the transaction take place at that and take that huge a haircut. So I think that's part of it. And then the other part is that like houses in Washington, in West Virginia, I think they would be valued maybe at zero dollars. You know, remember when Detroit was uh, uh, really in a state of disrepair in like the 2000s in the eight mile era and there were properties for a dollar that you could buy, but no one wanted them because they would come with city taxes and it would just be a money pit. And, you know, there'd be no way to make your money back if you were to invest in one of those properties. I think one in seven is absolutely outrageous. Okay, so we wouldn't uh, pulled up the article here it is dated March the 28th, 2023. That's it. And well, it just says right in bold at the top that 28 vacant homes for one, every one person experiencing homelessness in the US. And uh, yeah, that's unitedway.org from March 28th of 2023. Man, that, that's like a truly shocking statistic. I mean, that must mean it must be like including like apartments or something. But at any rate, that's a 
that's just that is like a that is definitely a, a truly shocking statistic yeah man well like we're all coop- we're, we live in these apartment tower on top of each other in single room studio apartments and uh they're like you know hotel rooms basically but meanwhile there's 28 houses that's just empty and like people who can't find room to, to, to feel like they have room to have kids that is a truly crazy situation to be in even if the number is one in seven that rock bottom like the the most conservative possible estimate that's still wild Again, there's 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 a location problem that comes with lumping the whole country together. But I still think that it, it speaks to an, an underlying reality that's not what's represented on the on the TV. Yeah, well one thing about our present time for sure is that we've just never had so much capacity for things to be different. Or like just with all the technology available in materials, obviously, you know, I guess a socialist utopia wasn't gonna what would be harder to happen with less advanced technology so like maybe back in like the 1800s for instance but now we just live in such a insane time of excess that we have to like artificially <laughs> uh burden ourselves we should be living in a futuristic society you know flying uh in flying cars right we should be ex- yeah you would think we would be ecstatic when labor saving technology gets invented that like if the technology comes around that cuts your workday in half, you, that would normally be a source for celebration for any sane society. But in our society, you'd be like, okay, well, does this mean that half of us are going to get fired? <laughs> that's re- and then that means you're now out looking for a job in a new profession. And that's really, the, that decision-making arises from the non-democratic arrangement where one person wears the owner hat and that's all. And then some people wear the worker's hat and that's all. What you want is a blend of those two roles in every individual uh, at the workplace or on the job site. It's the same idea as democracy. If you have everyone take part in the decision, it cancels out the individual egos so you don't get this egoic decision-making apparatus that leads to the glorification of just one individual, like the old god-king societies, or even the medieval societies where you know, the king wasn't god, he was god-adjacent, though. He was, you know, the church was your avenue to god. It's certainly interesting. There's that other famous definition of communism um, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, um, which is interesting. I mean, that really strikes me as the ultimate goal of every, that's like the gold standard of each and every society. That's really, you're distilled down to like a not what you would like society to be. We should all be striving to achieve that. And it's it's interesting. People have this this old canard that communism goes against human nature, which I find to be extremely odd. And the given the fact that almost all the labor we all do in our lives is communistic in fashion. What I mean by that is that when you're with your buddy on the job site, let's say, and you he asks you to pass him a wrench, you're not going to invoice him. I think that was David Graeber's famous example. When you're at work, you act. You know, you kind of there there is kind of a to each according to his need and from each according to his ability attitude. People aren't expecting to get paid. You don't. Expect to get paid for giving someone at work the information they requested of you or relaying the information or whatever your function is you're doing it out of a sense of sort of you know community with your coworker and the, the sense of united purpose or you know at home everyone arrives at the grandparents house for thanksgiving dinner you know grandma's not invoicing the grandkids for the turkey right it's it's <laughs> there really is a sort of you know you kind of make room for the kids to be kids and you expect more from the adults there's kind of this uh, shifting scale of social obligation according to your standing or your status and so it's just interesting to me that what we're talking about is the thing that resonates that resonates with our human emotion and who we are as people, the, the way that things ought to be, in other words. And we should be trying to get the way things are, you know, as close as we can to the way things ought to be, just as a general statement. 
but there's there's definitely a danger that has to be acknowledged to going too far and too fast. Um, you I, what is it that uh, JBP says? Don't carelessly denigrate existing social structures or or existing traditions. That's definitely the uh, the point that has to be made by looking at all the worst parts of communism and socialism, or at least the history thereof. Well, one thing I would say about communism, or or it's just that I think the way that things ought to be, like we need things to work in such a way where like our human nature works for us rather than against us. And I guess what I mean by that, well, I, I just, I do think that like the hierarchy, like humans are inher inherently hierarchical. Hier hierarchical? Uh, hierarchical. Our political system should kind of represent that. I, I think when people say yeah, capitalism is more natural or whatever, well, they're trying to get at that there is like a hierarchy Another thing is that, like, capitalism and communism, yeah, I wouldn't describe either as good or bad. They're just political tools. And so for the right, in certain situations, you're going to want one or the other. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't exactly know what the political system should be that we uh, have, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's got to do, do justice to our human nature. Well, I definitely agree that we can't expect perfect people <laughs> or perfect citizens. We need to you know, have a system, like you say, that runs on the basis of the way that people actually are. Um, but I think that a sense of community is a big part of that. And I think democracy is a big part of that, too. And I think technology has to be a part of it also, just to, given how integrated uh, the, the ongoing advent of both democracy and technology seem to be how central those two trajectories seem to be to the overall human trajectory maybe like uh, maybe the internet is um, like wiring us all together like some kind of massive massive neural net so that we make decisions collectively much better than any one individual egoic node of the network can make decisions and maybe we're emerging as some kind of um some kind of consciousness uh, that is like a superstructure to our current level of consciousness and maybe that's what's evolving here um, and maybe AI is part of that, but some, something where we make decisions communally, there's something about the connection between people that is the best part of being alive, right? It really gets to what makes life worth living. And so I think that that has to, the, the future has to be centered around that. that. That's what makes art so valuable and what the Italian Renaissance was all about. That's it, 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 it creates a connection between people because you can tell that the person who's creating the art that you are vibing with is seeing or feeling the same things you are. It's really, it really, it's like a the establishment of a connection. In short, nothing could be more compatible with the vagaries of human nature than a, um, than a future that is um, technologically, that in which we're we are linked in a, into a community through technological augmentation, like the internet or the Neuralink or some kind of crazy sci-fi sci equivalent. Well, uh, just like self-mastery, though, like is probably the point of existence, right? Or it would be awesome to like merge into one kind of super consciousness and uh, manifest our collective will. But just uh, on the other side of the coin, I don't know, like self-mastery does seem like the, the real point of existence. Self-mastery in the sense of achieving uh, your potential, uh, getting control of yourself over your ego like not doing the thing not doing the thing like 
uh, like resisting the stream of what your lower order consciousness wants to do to achieve great heights something like that this is what you mean by self-mastery i guess yeah to successfully like realize your will on yourself i mean what else is there really to do beyond self-mastery on this earth right is there a version of self-mastery that is satisfactory in and of itself or do you have to leverage it on behalf of other people your family your community your friends your family you know like whatever the whatever the social relation is is that a necessary part of it if you just do self-mastery so in other words is there any point to art if art doesn't have an observer right is like is there any point to self-mastery if you can't like i say leverage it on behalf of others or is it enough to master yourself and you don't need that added component well certainly if there weren't other people out there also well i think it's an inherent to our existence that like just all of our social instinct is kind of well you know you gotta you gotta keep up with the joneses or or obviously we're just social beings and interacting with people you know affects how we think about ourselves and self-mastery as satisfactory in and of itself for its own sake or does it do you need other people to also do you need other people in the trenches with you to make it meaningful yeah obviously other people it wouldn't it, I mean, if other people weren't attempting to self-master, uh, self-mastery, then yeah, there'd be no drive. They all, they also set the yardstick and also make it possible. Because if no one had any mastery, I, I don't know what we'd be doing here. Mm. So uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, how other people are are instrumental in self-mastery. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think that um, I think that there. I think uh, it's just like the the Italian Renaissance uh, with its. Um, with its explosion of art as a result of of social currents being revived and that society becoming less sedentary and more dynamic. And um, so I think that's really where we're at today. Um, like we, we are um, awash in uh, art that's produced by corporate bodies that are incapable of giving us an authentic view on reality because it runs counter to their self-interest. What, in short, we need Jimi Hendrix. Where is he? Like, we need our generation of great artists to arise and to reflect this reality back at us so we can all agree what's happening, so we can grapple with what's happening. That is, uh, that's my contention. What do you think? Uh, is there a dearth of art that, uh, that, like, there's no version we have of the great uh, explosion of art and of technological innovation that came about in the 1960s vis-a-vis Silicon Valley and rock and roll? Both of which were LSD-fueled, by the way. It's funny to note that the inventor of LSD, uh, Dr. Albert Hoffman, a Swiss, Swiss chemist who uh, he synthesized LSD from ergot in 1936 he wrote a letter to uh to steve jobs in like 2003 or 4 at post ipod you know about his remarkable uh, achievements because steve jobs has been very vocal about lsd being integral to his invention thereof and then of course there's like the beatles famous trip to the uh to the maharasha what's the word for it i, I forget the word but they, they went to england to study under this guru and there was a bunch of lsd involved and then that's when you get like the magical mystery mystery tour the white album abbey road and the <laughs> sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band um so it, yeah it's it's impossible to understate the interesting impact of lsd on the 1960s but we don't seem to have a we, we what we need to have is a similar outpouring of art you know like the 
the Rolling Stones, you know, Janis Joplin, Bob Dylan. We need our version of these guys. And I don't know, man, it's a lot of mumble rappers, but not a lot of, uh, you know, not a lot of uh, real meat to be found on that bone. So you're much more musically inclined than I am. What do you think? Where is our, um, where is our great, uh, great artistic explosion? What's happening? Why isn't it arriving? Yeah, well, we've got uh, Taylor Swift and uh, I like Ed Sheeran. Those are, oh, and uh, the Foo Fighters. That's like, uh, that's like the best start we've got, which, you know, I guess is uh, okay. Yeah, well, obviously we're thirsty pilgrims wandering a desert when it comes to art. I mean, you get a, you know, the occasional Quentin Tarantino movie. There's podcasts that are, you know, okay. So it's happening there to some extent. You think Taylor's capable of becoming the, uh, the, the bard of a generation? I mean, we millennials, we need one. You know, the lads from Seattle in the 1990s are not, not, not our generation. We need our own, like, uh, our own great heroes of song. Maybe Taylor Swift can write a song called Tax the Rich. <laughs> well, Taylor, if you're out there, um, help us out. Come on, we need, like, uh, we need some real art. Possibly, possibly some LSD would be a good place to start, I might suggest. Oh, um, yeah. If history is any indicator at all, I feel like that's really... To uh, borrow Aldous Huxley's term, the door of perception um, that you might need, my girl. So get after it, will you? Yeah, she could make some like wildly psychedelic albums. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice. We should hope for such a thing. <laughs> well, I think that I always like T Max. Um, T Mac, of course, is Terrence McKenna, the famed ethnobiologist who uh, wrote up some truly eyebrow-raising books. Um, but died of cancer, I think, in two thousand one, two thousand two. God, when I think of the minds that we need in this moment. Hitchens, Chris Hitchens, and Terrence McKenna are the number one and number two. You got to be kidding me. I can't believe those guys got taken too early. We could have had their input at this moment. Uh, it's just, it's it's too tragic to even contemplate. But this T-Mac would always have this notion that you could turn your living room by the introduction of a psychedelic into the bridge of uh, Magellan's vessel that first circumnavigated the globe. And he had this analogy of sending out explorers to the very fringes, the frontiers of human consciousness in order to see what they can, what a value they can bring back. This aligns with the notion of the quest, uh, the alchemical idea of the, uh, the, the journey through the dark forest, uh, the, the, this whole uh, notion that if you just, if you go out and adventure, you can find something of value and bring it back for your people and that way become a hero. I mean, that really is the journey that we need um, basically all young people to be taking. You know, it, it's we may have our ideas of the best way to fashion a new society, but let's be real. We just live in this apartment tower. We have no influence. So, like, um, we are going to need a whole lot of people putting their mind to this problem, uh, a lot smarter minds than, not, than, than mine. And so we should be sending uh, – we need not – we need new ideas. We should be sending these voyages, funding these voyages like um, Ferdinand and Isabella funding these voyages to the horizons of the human consciousness to bring back something, anything, any novel ideas that we can sift through and determine what's going to be the way that we're going to carry on going forward. Um, because crazy women, women screaming in the streets and finally losing their, their mind is no way to run a society. We could be doing so much better, uh, better apparently to the tune of 28 vacant homes for every unhoused person in the U.S. Yikes. So what do you think? I mean, I think it's like we... Is it is conversations like these enough to get the ball rolling? Like, uh, it, it, we're gonna have to be like the Scarecrow in that movie, The Batman Begins, and introduce LSD to the water supply. That's our that's our friend, the captain's idea. That's always hilarious. Like, uh, what's it like? A would it be like a Salem witch trial kind of accidental ergotism, or the Munster Rebellion kind of uh, 
ergotism. I don't. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think that the at least conversation has to be the beginning. I think you at least. Like, I imagine that Elon Musk owning Twitter, going up to the next election here, is probably good news. I mean, people don't like Elon Musk, but I mean, there's some things in place anyway. I don't know what to make of that dude either. Um, he doesn't, I mean, I don't know. At least the world is more interesting with him. It's like the Donald, you know, it's like, at least they're interesting. Um, I, I don't know what my final analysis would be on Mr. Musk. Um, but I certainly hope that um, Twitter won't be banning uh, banning relevant news stories in the, mar- in the run up to next year's election. Um, hopefully it'll be a little more, a little more sane than that. Yeah, I, I I don't know. It's really going to be a wild year. I, it does feel like um, the the zit is about to is like has to burst in twenty twenty four. Or what do you think? Is that a mistaken? Is that a mistaken impression you get from a news media that's always ratcheting things up to eleven? Uh, I mean, I think if the Donald gets elected, it'll be pretty real. I think if anyone but uh, besides an establishment candidate, most likely Democrat gets elected yeah then uh, it's probably gonna get pretty real like here's a naughty question <laughs> if uh supposing hillary clinton had won instead of you know like donald trump i mean would we still have had the covid <laughs> yeah that's interesting oh man it's really see the thing about when you have feckless institutions um and when and one of those institutions is um the, the your apparatus of like figuring out what's going on in society like the newspapers and the media like when you find out they're feckless and will totally lie to you, now you're like, okay, so how, how, what of the raft of uh, this whole raft of ideas and concepts and experiences I had that I think is going on, that the, the mental model of whatever's happening in society in my brain, like how much of it's based on false testimony? Because let's be real, precious little of it is based on firsthand experience. Most of it's something you saw or read or heard or whatever it might be. So I do worry about that, obviously. Well, just one thing that's certainly, well, we have to have this conception of everything going on in the world and thanks to like, you know, high speed internet, like we, uh, like, yeah, we, we just hear about like what's going on, like in the Ukraine and in China and we see everyone's social media and, and now we have this huge, like we, we just, our conception of the world is just so like a uh, high resolution at this point compared to where it would have been like, you know, 50 years ago and before cell phones and 5g. Do you, and it's warped, so it's a it's a conception of the world that um, I think is it, it's high resolution and also more prone to being mo- more admits of being monkeyed with uh, more than the old ways. I think anyway. I don't know. Maybe that means we have a pretty good sightline on reality. Maybe we have an, uh, maybe we have a perch um, an advantageous perch unparalleled um, in in history from from this uh, from this electronic vista that we can kind of take in in real time. Well, I mean, we're definitely overclocking our CPUs with TikTok, and uh, we're a little worse for wear. Uh, yeah, and our model of the world's not that good, but uh, I don't know. We're doing it nonetheless. You ever heard Dr. Eric Weinstein's response to that, that uh, at the same time as our attention spans being destroyed, we're also consuming long-form podcasts like this very one and watching uh, the arcs of characters over the cross eight seasons on Game of Thrones. So in some ways, we're also paying more attention or longer attention. In some ways, our, the window of our attention span seems to open. Um, any, uh, think that any, there's any credence to that? Well, we, yeah, we don't have ADD for things that are actually interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but just like the threshold of what's interesting has been raised drastically. To be fair to us, yeah, technology should have solved our, you know, dystopian uh, present times long ago, but we're suffering. 
uh, under the cruel lip of our capitalist overlords. Yeah, well, maybe it's inevitable, though, that things will get better, right? Maybe we, maybe, uh, we won't be the ones to screw the pooch, <laughs> despite this slight downturn in the, the grand trajectory of society. Maybe we're just in a weird little twilight time between the moment when technology improves everyone's lives and makes it much easier to live than it ever has been before. And we're just, we're just a little hangover period from, you know, from a little, a little growing pain getting to that point. That sort of cultural, that, that sort of, um, what is it, anthropological or, or historical fatalism is something that definitely is, it gets classified as Marxist or it's definitely part of, his, part of the ideas that Karl Marx would sometimes write about. So I think that um, the idea that we are, um, that there is a dam about to burst of, maybe it would take the form of artistic expression. I mean, we would get our generation's Jimi Hendrix, something like that, you know, someone who isn't going to take instructions from a corporate boardroom. We have to find some way to make that happen. Uh, maybe that's what the, uh, maybe the revolution could take a form that's, that's like that. You know, we could figure out some way to, um, to more equitably create and distribute the things that we all need to live our lives. Maybe, maybe as you say, uh, the, that's inevitable and that technology is uh, the way we're going to be able to achieve that. That certainly seems like it's been the case over history in the broad sense. So what do you think, Brian, in terms of a timeline? Like, I mean, uh, it's, you know, you don't want to like make, making predictions is a, good way to you know to show that you have no idea what's that's what's really going on but i think we have to measure the with the with the acceleration we're seeing here in portland i think it has to be in a less than 10 year time frame before people are going to finally say we've just had it we can't the current management has to go we can't we we can't tolerate it anymore um at what point are we going to stop being at each other's throats in this uh, culture war that you mentioned at the top of the podcast uh, do you think it could be as less than 10 years? Do you think that um, we have to more like get like 50 years? Or do you think that the, the, the assumption, the underlying assumption is somehow flawed? Like, uh, what, like what kind of timeline do you think uh, going forward? What's your best guess? I mean, I, I could see it stretching out and people just being stretched thinner and thinner over a long period of time. But it's what I was saying before. Uh, I mean, well, it could certainly happen as soon as this election or if AI just completely jumps out, I mean, I, I suppose that could happen any day too. But I, I really, I, so I'm just open-minded, I suppose. I mean, it does seem like change has to happen one way or another. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's not good news when, the, like, eventually the homeless people are going to start attacking. It's not surprising. For me, I really realized that the system was due for a failure when I was uh, like a uh, when I was you know um, in student loan debt peonage. Um, I really couldn't afford a salary and to pay my student loans and to do much. I, I could afford to like pay rent and you know eat, but that was really about it. And uh, I was pinioned in a situation I, I didn't really know how to escape from for a long time. And that led me to believe, oh, there's something, there's something wrong with the system. Like I assumed that there was guardrails in place to stop like disasters like this from financial disasters like this from happening, um, but there were not at all. And I should have been, you know, much more responsible and looking out for myself. Um, but the fact that this is possible to, to go to college and then come out with uh, so much debt that you can't, like my loan payments were hundred uh, were twelve hundred dollars every month. It was just a, it was just, uh, it was just being strangled. Um, like that's when I realized, oh, there's something fundamentally wrong with the system and it's going to be like something that heaps that kind of debt on its young people who are, you know, who is really not a system that can perpetuate itself into the future for too much longer. 
Um, I used to say that to people and they would just be, they, they had no idea what I was talking about for them. Things seemed like they were fine, you know, and, um, and it's been very interesting to see the realization set in for everyone that things are not fine with something is definitely wrong. Um, I think the wake up call for a lot of folks was maybe 2016 when the Don got elected and our politics became deranged beyond recognition. Um, but if it wasn't 2016, it definitely the COVID has, has brought everyone onto this side of the ledger. Um, so I, that has really been an interesting development to see, but I, I can't believe that it's lasted this long, that we're still in this weird sort of twilight. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah. so I guess I, I am interested that you also think it's, it could be in the, you know, in the single digits of years um, before we have to have some real, real shakeup. Um, and I bet it, res it resonates with a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast. Um, I bet for a lot of folks out there, they really, um, they really uh, sense that downward trajectory. Um, but I think uh, the, the 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 positive anecdote, the 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 way to spin that positively is that there's always it's always darkest before the dawn, and the, the, so far in history, uh, there's been some the, during the the collapses of these. The, these times of collapse of previous civilizations, there's always some, uh, there's always some something that uh, something always arises to to bring us back from the abyss. Maybe it's Christianity during the fall of Rome, or maybe it's um, the uh, magical magical tradition uh, in the medieval period, or some, you know some some kind of like recognition that uh, that there's more to there's more to life than the obvious uh, bubbles up and and. Um, and so maybe there, uh, so we should be looking forward maybe to that wave of artistic expression or something like that. Well, see, I feel like the left side uh, politically is yeah to hope for some kind of change because I mean, our system is terribly broken. Uh, the, the, the right sort of point of view would be, you know, well, self-mastery can be achieved at any time. <laughs> uh, you know, it's important regardless the state of society. So, yeah, I don't know. That's that's the politically right side. Yeah. Of the well, can you message. transcend the left-right political divide that um, that uh, to say that self-mastery leveraged on behalf of others is the is the real um, closing of the horseshoe on that front, and you know try to move forward with the unified uh, ideal on that front? I don't know. I mean, um, I like the idea of comparing it to the artist and the observer of the art. All right. Well, uh, that seems optimistic enough. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's we're... leave it. Yeah. Let's let's leave it there, and uh, we'll look forward to doing episode four uh, next week. Always fun, man.